Chapter Fifty Two of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Buttercups, a study of the species. This discussion will be of interest only to those who have had some practice in classifying wild flowers, and desire to understand the reasons for the system which they find in their books. Most of us think that we can tell a buttercup when we see it. If required to describe it from memory, we should probably say that it grows in pastures and meadows, that it has deeply cut leaves, and that its flower is a shallow cup composed of five glossy petals. Those of us who remember their school lessons in botany will be able to add that it has many stamens and many separate carpels. A good many different plants answer to this description, even when thus amended, and it is not easy to say which are to be reckoned true buttercups and which not. Does the reader know the two spearworts, the greater and the less? They grow in marshy places, and the flowers are very like those of a true buttercup. But the leaves differ. They are not cut into segments, but undivided. When the flower of a spearwort is closely examined, we find it resembles a buttercup not only in general structure, but even in details. Pull off a petal and examine its narrow base with a lens. You will find there a minute projection, which is a honey gland serving to attract the visits of insects. A similar gland is found just in the same place in every buttercup, and this fact strengthens the opinion that the spearworts, though they have peculiar leaves, may fairly be considered as particular kinds of buttercups. In ponds and slow streams, we often find growing in great abundance plants which have much resemblance to buttercups. The parts of the flower agree in every important respect, even to the gland at the base of the petal, but the petals are white instead of yellow. The leaves are usually of two kinds, floating leaves which are deeply cut, and finely divided submerged leaves, which look almost like leaf skeletons. The old-fashioned name for these plants is water crowfoot. If we were to go by the flowers, we might consider these two as peculiar kinds of buttercup and call them water buttercups. Is the celandine which flowers so freely on shady banks in early spring a buttercup? It has undivided, heart-shaped leaves. The sepals are usually not five, but three, and there are always more than five petals. But the celandine is of a bright yellow color, while it has numerous stamens and carpels, and even a honey gland and scale at the base of the petal, just as in a true buttercup. These examples show that it is not quite a simple matter to say what a buttercup is. If we judge by the leaves, we should be inclined to say that the spearworts and the celandine are not buttercups. If we judge by the color of the flowers, we should say that the water crowfoot is not a buttercup, but that the spearworts and celandine are. If we go by the stamens, carpels, and honey glands, we should call all of them buttercups. Botanists have generally taken this last course, and have made them into a single group, which they call a genus. We might call it the buttercup or ranunculus genus. We shall be obliged to alter our popular names a little if we wish to bring all the species of this genus under a single English name. There is much practical convenience in doing so, and we must try to find a good common name for the water crowfoot, the spearworts, the buttercups, and the celandine. The Latin name, ranunculus, is in general use. Shall we translate this by buttercup and apply that name to all the ranunculi? Then we may speak of the water buttercup, the two spearwort buttercups, the upright buttercup, the celandine buttercup, and so on. This will at least avoid confusion, though we may be sorry to spoil pretty and long-established popular names. The globe flower, Trolleus, 
which grows wild in some of our hilly districts and is often seen in gardens, looks like a buttercup too. The sepals and petals have much of the general appearance of those of a buttercup, and the stamens are quite similar, but there are a great many petals, and the carpels are not like those of a buttercup. They are only five in number, and instead of each containing a single seed, they are many-seeded. If we look closely at the honey gland, we find that it is not a prominence, but a sunk space. Here the difference from the buttercups, especially in the structure of the carpels, is so considerable that we may well hesitate to consider a globe flower a kind of buttercup. Hellebores have the same kind of carpels as the globe flower and must probably be associated with them. Can a wood anemone be placed among the buttercups? Not without spoiling the definition of the genus, for the six white leaves of the flower have no honey glands at their base. Indeed, there is reason to believe that they are not petals at all, but sepals, and that the true petals have disappeared. At all events, there is only one set of floral leaves. But since the anemones have numerous stamens and numerous one-seeded carpels, we must keep them near to the buttercups, if not in the same genus. What about the marsh marigold, Caltha, which looks very like an exaggerated buttercup? This too has no petals, but only petal-like sepals. There are many carpels, but they are not one-seeded. When ripe, they burst lengthwise and show a number of seeds within. Marsh marigold, too, would spoil the definition of the genus, if admitted, and by the structure of its carpels it is seen rather to belong to the hellebores, which have usually petal-like sepals, small petals, sometimes disappearing altogether, and many seeded fruits bursting lengthwise when ripe. Thus we recognize by the comparison of a number of flowers that there are outside the buttercup genus several allied species which cannot be included without spoiling the genus. Let us put them in a separate genera, the most natural that we can discover, and then associate all in one large assemblage. We might give the name of Ranunculus family to the large assemblage, which includes several genera. Ranunculus will of course be one of these. Clematis makes another distinct type, Anemone a third, and Hellebore or Caltha a fourth. All the British species of the buttercup family come near to one or other of these four types. It was only by degrees and after many failures that botanists came to recognize the buttercup family as a natural assemblage. Two hundred years ago, John Ray, the greatest naturalist of his age, put together the buttercups, the sinkfoils, and the strawberries, all of them being what he called polyspermous, that is, with many distinct carpels to one flower. Sinkfoils are often very like buttercups. They may have five sepals, five yellow petals, numerous stamens, and numerous carpels. Was Ray justified in placing them in the same family with the buttercups? Linnaeus turned them out again and put them in the same family as the roses and brambles. When he set up his classes and orders, based largely upon the number of stamens and carpels, the sinkfoils would have come naturally, together with all the buttercups, into his polyandria polygenea, but to this he would not consent. Taking advantage of the circumstance that the stamens of the sinkfoils, roses, brambles, etc., spring apparently, not really, from the calyx, he made them into a separate class, which he called icosandria. Had he any right to do so? Why was he bent upon keeping them apart from the buttercups? If we could have put these questions to him, he would have answered, quote, There are natural groups which we cannot make but only recognize, 
Sinkfoils and buttercups belong to distinct natural groups. I see no close affinity between them and have carefully framed my definitions so as to keep them apart. Unquote. This, you will say, is oracular and gives us no intelligible reason why sinkfoils and buttercups are not to be associated. Linnaeus had his reasons, but could not perfectly explain them, even to himself. Nevertheless, they were sound reasons, as all the later history of botany shows. Many arrangements of flowering plants have been tried since his day, but perhaps no one of them has put the sinkfoils and buttercups together. The modern classifier pictures the families to which they belong as two large islands in an ocean with no land passage from one to the other. Nothing would induce him to represent the sinkfoils as belonging to the buttercup island. If we are agreed as to our groups, it will be easy to find definitions for them. Plants belonging to the ranunculus family have distinct petals, numerous stamens springing from the top of the flower stalk, and separate carpels, whether few or many. Plants belonging to the ranunculus or buttercup genus have a gland on the petal and many one-seeded carpels. It will next be desirable to arrange the plants of the buttercup genus in the best order. One reason for doing this is that it is much easier to find the accepted name of any species if the descriptions are methodically arranged, but naturalists are not satisfied with an arrangement which is merely convenient for purposes of naming. They like to get what they would describe as a natural arrangement. It is not very difficult to divide the buttercups into small groups, which seem to be tolerably natural. We recognize, one, the water buttercups, which grow in or close to water, and have nearly always both floating and submerged leaves, besides white petals. Two, the spearwort buttercups, which have flowers both in form and color, almost precisely like those of ordinary buttercups, but undivided leaves. Three, buttercups with deeply cut leaves and yellow flowers. Four, the celandine buttercup, with undivided leaves and flowers like those of other buttercups, except that the sepals and petals are more numerous. The water buttercup and the celandine buttercup are the most peculiar of the four sets, and it will be convenient to put one at the beginning, the other at the end of the series, while the spearwort buttercups and the ordinary buttercups may occupy a place in the middle. Let us now, for the sake of further practice, see how we can arrange all the species of these groups in a natural sequence. The leaves, as we have seen, distinguish the two spearworts, for in these two they are undivided, whereas in most other buttercups they are much cut. The great spearwort buttercup has large flowers, two inches across, and the leaves are not stalked. In the lesser spearwort, the flowers are much smaller, and the leaves are borne on stalks. There are several common buttercups which can be distinguished from one another. We might divide them according to the form of the leaves, for no two are quite alike in this respect. This arrangement would bring out the existence of a pretty regular gradation in the shape of the leaves, but the gradation is so gradual that the groups would be ill-defined. The carpels differ in the different species. In some they are rough, while in others they are smooth. The flower stalks differ. In some they are furrowed, in others not furrowed. The sepals differ. In some they are bent back, reflexed, when the flower is open, in others they are spreading. Lastly, there is a difference in the honey gland. In some it is naked, while in others it is protected by a small scale. What organ shall we take as the basis of our primary division? 
Some botanists have said that the reproductive organs of the plant may be expected to yield more valuable characters than any other organs, and for the chief divisions of the buttercups, they would prefer characters taken from the carpels or stamens to characters taken from flower stalks or leaves. Some have said that convenience in naming is the chief or only consideration. Others that it does not matter in the least where you get your characters if they yield natural divisions. The success of the division, they would say, has to be judged altogether by the greater or less resemblance in many small details of the associated species. We may make a beginning by remarking that the cell-relieved buttercup, Ranunculus scelaratus, is tolerably distinct from most other buttercups, and may come at one end of the series, near to the water buttercups and the spearworts, with which, however, it does not seem to be very closely related. The Goldilocks buttercup will have to be placed close to the upright buttercup, and this again must not be widely separated from the creeping and bulbous buttercups. There is a buttercup common in cornfields, which differs from the rest in its carpels and fruits, for they are few in number and covered with hooked spines. Another buttercup, the hairy buttercup, which is a very uncommon species, has its carpels roughened by tubercles, and the small flowered buttercup has rough carpels too. This, like the hairy buttercup, is seldom met with. It is not difficult then to divide buttercups into such as have smooth carpels and such as have rough or spiny carpels. Removing the buttercups with rough carpels from the rest, we have now left four species, which cannot very well be defined by any positive characters. There are some obvious differences among them. For example, in the golden and the upright buttercups, the flower stalk is not furrowed. In the creeping and bulbous buttercups, it is. In the Goldilocks buttercup, as well as in the upright and creeping species, the sepals spread horizontally, whereas in the bulbous buttercup and in the three species with rough carpels, the sepals are reflexed or bent down when the flower is expanded. We can now apply these distinctions to get a classification which complies with our notions of affinity. Of the four buttercups in question, two, the Goldilocks and the upright buttercup, have the flower stalk furrowed and both have spreading sepals. The creeping and bulbous buttercups both have furrowed flower stalks, but in the creeping buttercup the sepals are spreading, while in the bulbous buttercup they are reflexed. We have now only to distinguish the Goldilocks buttercup from the upright buttercup, and this is not difficult. The honey gland at the base of the petal is covered by a small scale in all buttercups except the water buttercups, the Goldilocks buttercup, and the cell-relieved buttercup. This distinction will separate the upright buttercup, which has the scale, from the Goldilocks buttercup, which has none. Small differences like these make it possible to arrange all the buttercups in such a table as is given in every modern manual of British flowering plants. But no linear series can show all the relations which the botanist traces between these species. It is possible to make a nearer approach to a natural arrangement by grouping the species map fashion. Our list of buttercups shows us that a number of closely allied species, very similar in structure and mode of life, may exist side by side. Indeed, it is the rule, though not without its exceptions, that wherever we find a plant or an animal very abundant, it is accompanied by several nearly allied species. Chickweeds, clovers, sinkfoils, bedstraws, groundsels, thistles, hawkweeds, speedwells, docks, spurges, rushes, 
Pond weeds and sedges are familiar examples of the rule. Among animals, we might quote voles, warblers, owls, sandpipers, terns, gulls, houseflies, hoverflies, harlequin flies, gnats, etc. It is singular at first sight that many nearly allied species, all particularly numerous in individuals, should be able to exist in the same district. One would have thought that competition would speedily bring about a signal reduction of numbers, but such reduction is by no means inevitable. Human affairs, which have been more closely studied than the relations of animals and plants, show us why. Take any industry by which money has been made quickly and with apparent ease, such as the newspaper industry. We readily understand that where newspapers are profitable, newspapers will come to abound. Many will flourish side by side, even in the same city. To an observer ignorant of the language in which the newspapers are printed, they might seem very much alike. It will altogether escape his notice that the newspapers differ in price, in politics, and in the class of readers which they address, that one gives particularly good stock exchange news, that another has the confidence of farmers, and that a third describes football matches in language of uncommon vivacity. Our ignorance of the circumstances under which the buttercups compete with one another is almost total, but we may judge from their commonness that they enjoy special advantages over other plants. These advantages, whatever they may be, make it intelligible that several closely allied species should be able to flourish side by side. Moreover, our common buttercups, though very similar, are not quite alike even to the untrained eye. Sometimes we can assign no meaning to the differences which we observe. We do not know why some should have spreading, some reflex petals, some furrowed and some smooth flower stalks. But now and then we can see more or less distinctly the practical effect of a peculiar feature. We see that the upright buttercup, with its tall erect stem, will have the advantage in mowing grass. The creeping buttercup, with its numerous runners, the advantage in shallow, stony ground. Some buttercups are more acrid than others and deter more effectually the bites of animals. The corn buttercup ripens its nuts with the corn, and these nuts are spinous and clinging so that they are carried off with the sheaves, thrashed out with the grain, and sown with it next season. But how far are we from that kind of knowledge which would explain all the differences that we tabulate? The more ordinary buttercups, such as the upright buttercup, show by the simplicity, distinctness, and regularity of the parts of the flower that they are among the most primitive of flowering plants. Their very color is primitive, for yellow seems to be, next to green, the most primitive of flower colors. It is also, next to green, the most stable. The true buttercups do not deviate greatly from what we suppose to have been the original form of flower. The aquatic buttercups and the semi-aquatic cell-relieved buttercup have lost the scale to the honey gland. The aquatic buttercups have almost completely changed the original yellow on the petals to white. The celandine buttercup has reduced its sepals to three and increased the number of its petals. The small-flowered buttercup has often fewer than the primitive number of petals. The stem and leaves show a greater variety of structure. The simple leaves of the celandine buttercup, which are probably primitive, usually become more or less cut. The creeping buttercup throws out long runners. The bulbous buttercup has a starchy swelling at the base of the stem. The celandine buttercup produces detachable tubers and bulbils so freely that it has come to depend upon them for dispersal and very rarely ripens its seeds.
When we get outside the buttercup genus, Ranunculus, and consider the far wider buttercup family, Ranunculosely, the modifications of the flower become more important. We find enlarged nectaries, loss of petals, stamens reduced to five, carpels reduced to one, the nearly uniform yellow of the flowers changing to red, purple, and blue. The ranunculosily show in epitome the modifications which flowers in general have undergone in compliance with the tastes and habits of flower-haunting insects, in this case mostly bees and flies. Time would fail even to mention the countless adaptations of leaves, stems, and roots which are met with in the great buttercup family. What is the main purpose of a classification of plants or animals? The first systematists had very likely nothing in their minds beyond orderly arrangement. Even that excellent naturalist Ray could think of no better arrangement of plants at the time of his first treatises than an alphabetical one. Any orderly arrangement is of great service as a means of rapidly finding out what is known about a particular plant or animal. The view long prevailed, and is evident in many old systems, that the best arrangement of animals or plants was that which brought together such as agreed in their mode of life. Hence animals were classed as animals with or without blood, as hot-blooded or cold-blooded, as walking, flying, or swimming animals, and so on. Plants were divided into trees and herbs. Working naturalists came in time to perceive that it was bad classification to put bats near to birds, or whales near to fishes, or the crowberry near to the heaths, however striking the superficial resemblance might be. The principle of arrangement according to the organs of greatest physiological importance was defended long after it had been proved to be impossible in practice. For nearly two centuries it has been admitted that plants and animals must be classified according to their natural affinities. Nobody, however, could be got to explain what he meant by affinity. They talked much about affinity, and they really recognized it, but they could not say what it was. Every fresh systematist proposed his arrangement, which was praised as natural or blamed as unnatural, and in time opinion became fixed as to the primary groups, at least, although no logical basis of a natural classification had yet been discovered. In one important respect, the accepted systems infringed a universally admitted logical rule. Everyone agrees that whatever property is selected as the basis of an arrangement, it must be kept to throughout. In classifying books, you may go upon subject or size or alphabetical order of authors' names, but if you begin with one of these and afterwards change to another, you will get into hopeless confusion. Now this was just what the naturalists did, or seemed to do. Indeed, they discovered that the classifications which best satisfied their sense of affinity continually changed their basis. All classifications by characters taken from single organs, corolla, stamens, organs of circulation, organs of respiration, or whatever it might be, proved unsatisfactory. The increasing unanimity of naturalists on fundamental points showed, however, that whether they conformed to the rules of logic or not, they were in all probability making a nearer and nearer approach to scientific truth. Such was the state of matters fifty years ago when Darwin put forth his doctrine of the origin of species, which threw a flood of light upon the classification of plants and animals. Darwin gave reasons for believing that animals and plants, now quite distinct from one another, have often descended from a common ancestor. Affinity he interpreted literally, as the result of common descent, 
natural groups are collections of species whose likeness to one another is derived from common descent, and their unlikeness to other groups partly to the extinction of connecting forms which once existed, partly to gradual divergence. Divergence among species is a form of division of labor. One buttercup, for instance, becomes adapted to life among long grass, another to dry stony ground, a third to life in cornfields, which are regularly reaped and sown again. The more closely they become adapted each to its own sphere, the more will they diverge from one another. We now regard the buttercups as plants which have diverged in comparatively recent times from one common ancestor, and this, if we could recover it, we should very likely pronounce to be a buttercup too. The gaps which separate the buttercups from one another, and the wider gaps between the buttercups and the anemones, or between the buttercups and the hellebores, we attribute mainly to the disappearance of connecting forms. The gap between the buttercups and the sinkfoils we believe to be far wider, and their common ancestor must date immeasurably farther back than either the common ancestor of all the buttercups or the common ancestor of all the sinkfoils. Darwin's theory of the origin of species shows that the principle of a natural classification of plants or animals is descent, near or remote, from a common ancestor. It may restore our confidence in logical principles or in natural classifications, whichever is shaken, to remark that the Darwinian explanation causes every natural classification of plants and animals, like every logical classification, to rest upon a single basis. End of chapter 52